I hope you got sleep last night. That's my prayer for you, because today I'm going to give you a lot, and I need you to focus in, because what we're going to talk through is going to build off one another. If you don't engage from the beginning with what we're going to talk about, you're going to hear something a little bit later that may be or may come across hurtful or offensive, but it's only because you didn't hear it at the beginning. And if that's the case, you're going to send me emails. And then we're going to get into fun conversations, you know, about this whole uh, conversation that we're supposed to have today. So I just need you to kind of kind of focus in because one thing is going to build off another. So let me review. In this series, we are calling Why Behind the What? We want to look at what did Jesus say, but why did he say it? Because Matthew, who writes the book of Matthew to a primarily Jewish audience, spends three chapters on one sermon that Jesus gave. One sermon. He spent three whole chapters out of the 28 to emphasize for us the important words of Jesus. Now, why? Why did he do this? Because he tells us in Matthew 4.23 that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Matthew then says, here's what Jesus said. Here's the good news of the kingdom. If you want to know about what Jesus said in these synagogues, what he did, here's what he said. And I'm going to give you three chapters to unfold the good news of the kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God is God's reign and rule in our lives. Kingdom of heaven is actually in heaven, but the kingdom of God is God's reign and rule in our lives. Now, have you ever had a child? or heard a child that said something along these lines. Hey, mom, can I stay up to this hour now? Because my friend Susie's mom lets her stay up till this hour and beyond. And so can I stay up just like Susie's mom lets her, so can you let me? Or another way, uh, dad, uh, you you know Billy, uh, Billy uh, got an iPhone, and I know I'm seven years old, but I want an iPhone also, and Billy's parents got him an iPhone, so why can't you let me have an iPhone? Anybody ever have any kind of conversation like that? Okay, so I'm not the only one who received a conversation like that. Uh, And what you really want to say is, well, you know, I'm sorry, but uh, Billy and Susie's parents are morons. But you don't say that. (laughs) That's what you want to say, but you don't say that. You say something along these lines. That's fine, you know, for Billy and Susie's parents to be able to let them. But you're in my house, and you're under my roof, and we have certain rules or certain times in which we give you things for your benefit and for our relationship because you're in my family, right? In the same way, when you and I accept Jesus, we are adopted into his family, but in his family, there are rules. Now, don't miss this. All the rules in God's family are there to enhance or to protect relationship with him and relationship with our family members as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we live under the reign and rule of God when we accept Jesus, and now we're brothers and sisters, a part of a new family with new rules, new responsibilities. We take our orders, our rights, our privileges, and these responsibilities from the king for this kind of benefit. So with that as the groundwork of what it means to be part of the family, let me start with this today. I grew up in an age where you didn't have cable. I know it's going to sound funny as I describe this to millennials, so um, just kind of walk with me. We had something called UHF. In fact, you actually had to sit in front of a television, believe it or not, when the show actually came on TV. 
And, and in fact, and, and when I grew up, um, uh, uh, the youngest sibling had to be the remote control. You know, because you had to say, well, change it to this one. And it was a knob, you know, that they had to change. And if the bunny ears weren't right, you had to get it exactly right in order to get whatever television program. The reason that's important is because on Saturday morning, it was Saturday morning cartoons. And obviously the two best cartoons in that day and age was Transformers. And then right afterwards was something called G.I. Joe, the real American hero. Now, what I remember about G.I. Joe, besides the obvious awesome graphics, you know, um, it was the catchphrase that knowing is half the battle. Knowing is half, it's always stuck with me, even as I grew up, and I, and I realized, isn't that true in life? Uh, when you know that you've got a battle to face, when you know you're in a battle, you actually have a chance to win the battle. Where we lose often in our, in our own lives is that we don't know we're in a battle or we don't recognize we're in a battle. We don't admit we're in a battle or we justify, rationalize, and explain that's not really our battle and thus we have already lost the battle before it began. And so we want to know that we're in a battle. Now, it's easy to see battles that others are facing, right? Like, she's got issues, you know? And so you look at that other person's life and be like, man, if she would just recognize those issues, then the battle that she is facing would be so much easier, but obviously she doesn't see it, or man, he's got problems. If he just recognize his problems and deal with the battle that he's facing, it'd be so much better. It's so easy to see everybody else's, but it's a lot harder to look in the mirror. But the reality is all of us are facing the same battle. All of us are. We are. It's daily. It's hard. It's painful. The battle that we're all facing is sin and our sinful nature. Now, many of us might say, well, well, no, no, that's not really a battle I'm facing. I'm kind of a good person, and that's not, no, 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 no. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, you know, have made moral mistakes before a holy God. In fact, 1 John 1, 8, 8 reminds us, if we claim we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. You've already lost the battle if you don't realize that this is a battle that we go through on a regular basis. Now, in God's kingdom, sin hurts and hinders relationships. Again, this is the foundation. This is the why behind the what. Our, what's interesting about sin is that we focus so much on the external, the ramifications, that we don't get to the real heart behind the issue, which is internal. See, our battle is not external, it's internal, even if it's revealed externally. So one of the mistakes that we make is that we try to be, change our behavior instead of realizing the behavior is just an internal, re external reflection of our heart. Now, this time of year uh, is usually when the spiders come out a little bit more, right? As it gets a little colder, they, they kind of want to make their ways in. And so one indication that there's a spider in your house is you and I have seen cobwebs. Well, we, we have seen webs, you know, that are around, and, and so our first response is to get rid of the web, is to get rid of the cobweb, right? If that's as far as you go, you've not dealt with the problem. The problem is the spider. The spider is what you actually have to go kill in order to get rid of the cobwebs. See, the web is the external behavior. The spider is the heart that we've got to work on, that we've got to kill, that we've got to change in our lives. Let me say it this way. Parenting is not primarily about behavior modification. 
Right? If you get to the heart of a child, then the behavior begins to change. If all you do is focus on the behavior, first it's exhausting. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. But if you can actually get to the heart of the matter, then you see the child, eyes open, heart begins to change and reflect, and then their behavior matches what's going on in here, where it's the battle over the heart, not just the behavior modification. And so Jesus throws down this challenge when it comes to this understanding in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that, that Tyler talked about a little bit last week. But I warn you, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So you need to understand how shocking this would have been to the Jewish audience. Pharisees of those days took their religion incredibly serious, seriously. So they not only followed every part of the law to the exact measurement, but they also held you to that same measurement. So they were the ones that were looked at as saying, if you want to be close to God, be more like a Pharisee, be more like a religious leader. And so what Jesus is telling all these people, hey, you can't get to heaven. You can't connect to the kingdom unless your righteousness, now righteousness just means right living or right standing before God is greater than these religious people. Like, well, that's not encouraging. That's devastating. And yet Jesus is making an incredible point that we want to walk through as well. Because then he's going to go through six examples where he's going to use this phrase. You've heard it said, well, where do you hear it said from? The Pharisees, according to Old Testament law, this phrase. And then he's going to say these words, but I say this. Now, nobody can come in and change the law of God unless it's God himself. So Jesus is actually claiming to be God which is why at the end of this, these three chapters, the end of this sermon, they're like, man, this guy speaks with incredible power, incredible authority, unlike anything that we've ever heard, because nobody could do this except God himself. And so he's about ready to rock everybody's world. So for the remainder of our time, we get to talk about murder, adultery, and divorce. Woo! Come on, who's with me? Yeah, I knew you'd be excited about coming to church today. Yeah, me too. All right, so let's jump in because this lays the foundation for what he's going to say. Let's talk about murder. That's probably the easiest one. Uh, Matthew 5, 21. You've heard, Jesus says, that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. So you're thinking, yeah, that's good. Everybody kind of knows. Most societies, moral societies or not, knows murder is probably not a good idea. It probably doesn't put you in a good standing before God whether you believe in him or not. So you're like, all right, my righteousness needs to match or exceed the Pharisees. We're on the same level. But then he goes on and says this. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, some of your translation says fool, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now, the court would have been 71 uh, of the Jewish leaders that he's just referred to. These are the moral, you know, police, per se, of the days that hold people accountable that you'd be brought before to. Now, this is incredibly strong language. And you're like, what in the world? Anger and murder? Judgment? Hell? Now, when Jesus used the word hell, the phrase is Ghana. 
you know, Guiana. And there's actually a valley that's just south of Jerusalem that's a burning trash heap or dung pile that takes place. And so when people think of hell, that's the image that comes to people's minds when he's speaking it to this group of people. Now, so what's up with this anger thing? Understand, the spider, the heart issue behind murder isn't murder, it's anger. What led someone to actually get to murder, it starts much earlier in the heart. Now, when you and I hear anger, you're like, well, what, how many of us have not been angry before? So I guess we're all, you know, condemned, that kind of stuff. Now, there's two understandings of the word anger in what Jesus is talking about. First is a holy anger. This is a moral justification for what is wrong. I'm angry for the suffering of the world. I'm angry when evil seems to win out. I'm angry for those who cannot defend themselves. You remember Jesus himself? I mean, you know how angry he must have got when he's in the temple and he creates his own whip, right? And he gets up and he just starts whipping people and gets out these money changers because they were taking advantage of people who wanted to come and worship God. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing sinful with what he did. So what is he talking about? He's talking about another kind of angry. To be angry without reason, without moral justification. In other words, I'm angry because I didn't get my way. It's a selfish anger, and it's an uncontrollable anger where you fly off the handle, you know, where you yell at cars who cut you off. Well, maybe some of you guys would say that's actually a moral justification, you know, in your anger, you know. But Jesus gives us an example, though, of what he says this type of anger looks like. He says, when you call someone a fool, when you call someone an idiot, when you curse at them, and you're like, okay, why is that compared to murder? What in the world are we talking about here? What he is saying, if you've ever had a harsh word with a friend, coworker, neighbor, someone you didn't know, what you and I are doing, whether we realize it or not, is that we are pulling ourselves to moral superiority over that person. I don't know how best to say this. Think of the worst cuss words in our language. And when you speak that to another person, what are you doing out of anger? You are saying, this is your label. This is who you are. You're an idiot, you're a moron, and then you know all the other words. And what you're saying is that I am morally superior in this moment to you. And what Jesus is saying, no. We are not morally superior to our brothers and sisters. We are not morally superior in our relationship with him. That's the heart issue. I remember uh, when I got really angry at my older brother, we used to just fight. Maybe I had siblings, you just fight like cats and dogs, you know, and we fight all the time. Well, one time it just elevated to a point where I was done. And so uh, I was probably fourth grade, he was eighth grade, and I charged him. And when I charged him, uh, he was so much bigger than I was at the time, he just pushed me back. And he says, knock it off. So I charged him again, and he pushed me back. And so I was so enraged, I grabbed for whatever I could find, and I grabbed a knife. And I looked at him, and I stopped, because I'm all trembling. I've had this anger. I'm all crying anger. You know, they're just, they're just over the top, clearly done. And he looks at me, he goes, Danny? That was my name back then. Danny, throw down the knife. And I had at least enough sense to look at him like, what am I doing? And I threw down the knife, and then I charged him, and then he punched me, and he decked me. I flew over chairs, and I just lay there just in a sobbing mess. Now, when my parents came home, do you think their conversation was, Dan, let me remind you the proper use of a knife. Let me, let me have a conversation about the knife's purpose is this and is this. No, they wanted to get to the heart of the issue. So they sat me down and they asked the why question. 
They didn't ask what was going on. They said, why are you so angry with your brother? Why, you know, did it get to this point? What are some things that we need to talk about? And we would do that on an ongoing basis because they wanted to deal with the heart issue. They didn't want to deal with just that I got in a fight with my brother. And it's the same thing with God, with his children. He wants us to understand what we do with one another out of anger and how that destroys and hinders relationship. And so he goes into two examples of how this could play out as it pertains to our relationships with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 23, this won't be on the screen, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. So this is you being an innocent party in, the, in, in this matter. You have no issue. You realize when you're ready to worship God, when you to present an offering to him, that someone else has something against you. Most of us would say, that's their problem. They need to work on it. God says, no, no, no. As part of my family in the kingdom of God, I want you to leave. This is how serious it is for me. I want you to leave your worship of me, and I want you to do your part. You can't fix anybody else. Do your part in reconciling relationship with your brother and sister, even if you've done nothing. In the same way, my mom you know, had a conversation with my older brother. And she began to talk to him, says, you know, hey, you know, I know what Danny did. I know he came after. Yeah, it's all his fault. What's he doing? She goes, yep, yep, you're right. He shouldn't have done any of the things that he did. Did you know he grabbed a knife? Yep, I understand. You know, he did all those things. But what are some things that you can do moving forward to build relationship with your brother? Even if you've not done anything, what can you do knowing that he has something against you? That was her challenge to him in the same way we're part of God's family again. And he's saying, if you know someone has something against you, as part of the family of God, a part of the kingdom of God, under his reign and his rule, we're supposed to leave and go and do our part. Then he says, you know, when you are on your way to court, is another example, with your adversary, settle your differences quickly, otherwise your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free until you paid the last penny. This has nothing to do with about money. What he's saying is, in this case, you do have something. You do have a part to play in business. You do have a part to play in your real life. And although you could justify, rationalize, and explain it away, which is the reason you're going to court in the first place, you still need to do your part if you're part of the kingdom of God. What he's saying is that relationship supersedes religion, supersedes ritual, supersedes all other things. And he says, anger tends to hold and embitter us when it comes to our relationship with God and with other people. All right, enough about murder and anger. Let's go to an easier one. Adultery, our favorite subject. Matthew, where's Ryan Lindblom when you need him, you know, at this point? Matthew 5, 27, you've heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. Now, when you start hearing that, you're like, yeah, I realize adultery hurts relationships. You know, whether you've been a person that has committed or been on the receiving end of someone who committed adultery, you know, in a marriage relationship, you know, it hurts relationships. So this is a pretty obvious statement. You must not commit adultery. And, but then he makes it a little bit higher because sometimes as followers of Jesus, you're like, well, whew, at least I didn't commit adultery. At least I didn't hurt my relationship with my family like that guy or that gal. He says, oh, you're sitting there thinking that you're pious and above everybody else. Let's put everybody on equal ground. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. So you're saying, Jesus, that if I've committed adultery by even looking and longing that way? So what is he trying to hit at? The heart issue behind adultery. See, adultery is the web, right? The spider is lust in our hearts. That's what he wants to deal with. See, lust is the gateway to adultery. And then he gets real specific. You're going to love this. Verse 29. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, just gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw that away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Wow. If we followed the literal words of Jesus, there'd be so many one-eyed, one-armed men and women walking around. I'll just tell you that right now. Right? What do you call a guy with no arms and legs and a body of water? Bob. You know, what do you call that same guy on a wall? Art. Sorry, Ben. All right, not good. I won't use that next service. Thank you. <laughs> Trying to lighten the mood. Talking about adultery. You know, this is fun. So what is Jesus saying? What is he saying? Is he talking about, is he advocating self-mutilation? No, he's making a statement that you can still, let me think about it, you can still cut off your hand and one eye and you can still lust. Okay? So he's making an extreme exaggerated emphasis that to avoid sin in the heart especially is worth whatever drastic measures are required, even if it feels like insanity to the world around you, to do something that's different. See, in James 1:14, it tells us the process of where this leads in our hearts. See, temptation comes from our own desires. Now, temptation is not sin. You know, being, being sparked by temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. But then, it entices us and drags us away. So we've been in a battle. We've kind of lost the battle. Now we're in it. We're being drug away. And then notice the progression. These desires give birth to sinful actions. That's the outward. For it's what's happened in the heart. And when then sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Death in relationship to God and relationships to other people. God cares about our hearts so much that he wants us to go to extreme measures. In fact, I don't know if you've heard this crazy story. On August 25th of 2018, an eight-foot African python killed Daniel Brandon. Crazy part about this is it didn't happen in the wild. It happened in his bedroom in the United Kingdom, where he decided to raise this obvious predator in his home, and he raised it from birth, called it tiny. In fact, took all these social you know, pictures, social media pictures, you know, of this python as it grew and grew and grew. And one night it turned on him and actually took his life. In the same way, we play with this when it comes to lust in our lives. I mean, let's get real. Um, how many of us have justified, rationalized, explained away, you know, uh, a pornographic image or pornography or emotional fulfillment outside of our marriages or outside of our relationships and our work and our hobbies instead of through our homes. And we say things like, well, everybody's doing it. Our culture's doing it. It's just so normal. It's not that big a deal. Or my wife or husband doesn't meet my physical needs. Or my husband doesn't listen to me like he used to. And at least the person at work or in the place of enjoyment is actually caring for my heart. Or it's only this one time. And it's hard to be able to do. And when we start going down that road, you've lost the battle. And so we've got to go back and say, all right, it's a battle that you're going to face and I'm going to face on a regular basis. And Jesus is asking us to do some heart work 
as part of the kingdom of God that raises the bar. And since we're on the subject of adultery, let's just talk about divorce. Verse 31, you've heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Now, let me be clear, as you read about this in other areas, God hates divorce. Every divorced person I've talked to also hates divorce. Nobody who's gone through a divorce says, yep, so glad I went through that. That was, woo, great, glad, you know, hope everybody else experiences what I did. Everybody hates divorce, but God loves divorced people. See, a lot of times we can look at an issue and we just can categorize and put people in positions. But what Jesus is saying, he's got to understand context. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, it talks about giving someone a written certificate of divorce based on this word that you can read, indecent. So what they did is like what we do in our laws. What does that word mean? And so then they had all these other things of what that could mean in a relationship. I'm not kidding. There is actually in the Mishnah a law that says you can divorce your wife if she burns dinner. How many of us would be divorced? I'm actually the one that burns in our household. You know, uh, the other group of people would be like, no, 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 that's not what it was meant. So they got in to the argument of the external instead of understanding what is God's purpose behind marriage. And so what Jesus is saying is if if you get divorced or you divorce for any other reason than unfaithfulness, then the next person that you or she marries, you are committing adultery. He's raising the bar on that. Now, if it's marital unfaithfulness and you get married, there is an adultery taking place and divorce is okay in the eyes of God. But let me be clear. The heart issue behind divorce is unfaithfulness. It's going back to God's heart for marriage. And sometimes we're called to remain faithful even when our spouse has been unfaithful. It's all dependent upon a true repentant heart just like God does for us. The core issue has always been the heart. But yet we find ourselves in our day and age, just like in Jesus' day, rationalizing, justifying, explaining away with things that are not to deal with unfaithfulness, like I'm just not in love anymore. God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? And so I'm not happy. And so let me just leave this commitment and go to someone else. So this person is not meeting my needs. So I need to go find someone else who's meeting my needs. So what, Dan, do you, do you say about abuse and other issues like that? See, so you're getting caught up in the legalism. Every instance is a different instance. And here's what I want you to hear more than anything else. The point of this conversation for those of you who have especially have gone through or experienced divorce, is not for you to walk out of here with your head down, feeling guilty or remorseful. You and I cannot change our past. What he's saying is, from this point on, can you remain faithful? From this point on, and if you're going through hard times in your marriage, like all of us do, if you're going through seeds of doubt, if you're thinking about leaving your spouse, maybe this is the reason that God had you here today, hold on and seek help. Help us to walk the journey with you. Help us to engage. Help yourselves by talking to other people about it before you make a mistake in your life. Because our love here at Valley Real Life is to walk through people through their experiences. So maybe you're a person who has suffered from major anger issues. You're welcome here. Maybe you're a person who has suffered from, you know, uh, lust and you're in this emotional affair and situation in life. We want to walk with you. Maybe you've gone through a divorce. Fine. You know, we understand the pain that it causes. Why does God say all these things? So that all the listeners can understand 
no one can exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees themselves are on equal ground with you and with me, which is why we need a Savior, which is why we need Jesus in our lives. That's his whole point as he goes through, you know, these. And we'll actually, if, if we didn't hit one of yours today, I promise we'll hit it next week. There's three more in this fun sermon series. Come back. This is going to be great. We're going to have more conversation. Remember, knowing is half the battle. Don't walk out of here hardening your heart, justifying, rationalizing, explaining away. The key is to know. The second is to do something about the sin in our lives, to face that battle. So the, how do we do that? We confess our sin to God and others. That's the first thing. We say, God, I recognize I've blown it in the past. And whether it be this morning, yesterday, last week, 10 years ago, I have blown it. John, 1 John 1, 9, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. But we also need our brothers and sisters as part of God's family and God's kingdom. It says this in James 5, 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of the righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And so that's the first, admitting that you have been in the battle, maybe admitting that you failed, but then secondly, take radical repentance steps to work on your area of sin. This is what he wants to do. You've got to do some things that are different than what you've done in the past that deals with the heart. Deal with the spider that is in your life. Don't deal with the cobwebs. Repentance means I'm going in this direction. I've always done this direction. I admit, confess God that this is what you have done in my life. I'm going to do a U-turn. I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to do some things that are different in my life. And then lastly, to receive. Please leave today receiving the grace and love of God as members of God's family and his kingdom. That's the why behind the what. In fact, as, as we wrap up, you know, today, there's, there's one more verse that kind of sums up everything that we've talked about that I hope you'll embrace and understand how to walk through this. And Romans 6, verse 12 through 14 says this, Do not let sin control the way that you live. Do not give in to the sinful desires. Don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, here's the option, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life in him. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. That's what Jesus is exposing. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Amen. That's what you walk out of here. Head, head held high. Knowing the way Jesus views you is what Christ has done for you and I. If you've not yet received him, this is why we implore you to recognize that you're in a battle for your soul and the way that you win is not because of anything you're going to do. There's not enough good deeds that outweigh the evil that's in our hearts. We need a Savior and his name is Jesus. For the rest of us, what is your specific next step this week in the battle for your heart? You've got to do something different. You know the battle that you're facing, whether it be in anger or in lust, or thinking about leaving or destroying another relationship, there's an option. There's a different pathway. And God only wants the best for his kids in relationship with him, in relationship with other people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity. Lord, just to hit on some hard things that you discussed, but we know that you did it out of love. That you care about us in relationship with each other, in relationship with you. Help us, Father, just to focus in on some heart issues. So even right now, I pray that you would hear the confession of our hearts. And that you'd help us to realize what the next steps would be.
so that we don't keep doing the same thing over and over. Father, thank you for the battle. Thank you for the opportunity. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.